The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines. U.S. President Joe Biden takes aim at Vladimir Putin in his first State of the Union address, slapping fresh sanctions on Moscow for its invasion of Ukraine. I'm announcing that we will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia and adding additional squeeze on their economy. President Biden also announces a coordinated crude release as oil prices spike to their highest level in almost nine years. We use every tool at our disposal to protect American businesses and consumers. Tonight, I can announce the United States has worked with 30 other countries to release 60 million barrels of oil from reserves around the world. Kyiv under siege, Ukraine's capital is rocked by a fresh assault with an airstrike hitting the main television tower while a massive convoy advances towards the city. And China indicates it could act as mediator between Russia and Ukraine, with Beijing saying the country is ready to play a role in reaching a ceasefire while raising concerns about the harm to civilians. So a very warm welcome to the program, everybody. This was always going to be a challenging speech. It's up to you whether you think Joe Biden pulled it off. The U.S. president has pledged to make Russia pay a heavy price and isolate the country in the world stage after its invasion of Ukraine. In his first State of the Union address, Biden said economic sanctions would sap Russia's economic strength and ultimately hit its military. Biden also vowed to target energy prices. Uh, he plans to keep those in check by tapping into U.S. and global oil reserves. The president also laying out his plan to fight inflation by boosting manufacturing in the United States. Well, on the war in Ukraine, Biden told Congress that Vladimir Putin had made a terrible miscalculation in Russia's ability to overcome the Ukrainian people. Six days ago, Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has seen energy prices surge, with Brent and WTI crude prices now both at well over $100 a barrel, with WTI having hit its highest level since September 2013. The US and allies have responded by releasing some 60 million barrels from their strategic reserves, with Biden saying the United States is ready to release more if necessary. I can announce the United States has worked 
with 30 other countries to release 60 million barrels of oil from reserves around the world. America will lead that effort. Releasing 30 million barrels of our own strategic petroleum reserve. And we stand ready to do more if necessary, united with our allies. Biden also laid out his plan to fight inflation, which has hit a 40-year high. The president said the U.S. must cut its reliance on international supply chains and invest more in America. One way to fight inflation is to drive down wages and make Americans poor. I think I have a better idea to fight inflation. Lower your costs, not your wages. Folks, that means make more cars and semiconductors in America, more infrastructure and innovation in America, more goods moving faster and cheaper in America, more jobs where you can earn a good living in America. Instead of relying on foreign supply chains, let's make it in America. Well, let's get an assessment of the president's speech. Tony Fratto joins us, founding partner at Hamilton Place Strategies. Uh, Tony, good to have you with us from Washington. Let me ask you, in the round, how do you think the president did? Uh, overall, it was a pretty solid speech. I mean, it was, had all of the pieces that you expected to see in a speech like this. Uh, you know, if you if you take set aside the Russia Ukraine piece, which was pretty clear was added uh, in the last few days since the attack, uh, all of the other elements had the pieces you expect on, uh, especially on the president's domestic policy. Some of the populist pieces, which you just highlighted on the the Buy America, something that uh, he's been emphasizing for some time. I think he took the opportunity in this moment uh, to say that we need to rely more on ourselves. The Russia-Ukraine piece, uh, everybody was looking forward to the, those moments at the very beginning of the speech. I, I don't, you know, you, I don't know if you have to go back to post 9-11 for a moment when America was more unified on a single issue uh, like they are today on the question of support for Ukraine and uh, antipathy for uh, Russia. So uh, those were, you know, big applause moments. The restriction on Russian flights over U.S. airspace did grab some headlines, but given that we've seen Canada and most of Europe already take that step, not such a big move. Um, the U.S. Yeah. population or public would like to see more, but I guess at this stage they are not ready to see American boots on the ground. Certainly not ready to see boots on the ground, and I think I think all the all the you know NATO nations uh, I think are probably in agreement uh, in that right now. Uh, you know, I mean, we don't know what the future will bring, but that is a that's a very big step that has consequences for all of us uh, if uh, if the United States or any other NATO nation would do that. So we take that seriously. I have to give the the, the White House some credit. You're you're absolutely right. That was an observation of mine as well in watching the speech that there wasn't a lot new in it. Not only not in the Russia part and the Ukraine part, but uh, even on domestic policy, not much new. But we have to give credit to the White House for having done a lot over the past five days uh, with the breadth and scope of uh, sanctions coordinated with allies. Um, the theme of it, of the, you know, the, the restoration of uh, the transatlantic alliance, 
I think was really important. I think I was, a, you know, even without new programs, new things to talk about, this is something that Biden ran on, uh, you know, a year ago, 18 months ago, uh, that the, the alliance has been tattered over the years, over during the Trump years, but even preceding the Trump years and even in my administration and the Bush administration. Uh, so his aim to restore that, uh, you know, can take some credit for that over the last, uh, you know, over the last few weeks in building this, uh, you know, the sanctions regime that we've seen. And Tony, let me just move you on to the inflation story. Um, there did seem to be a, a little bit of an effort there to uh, tag the causes of inflation to the actions of American companies lifting prices. Do you think that was the right strategy? Well, it's it, it, not from an economic standpoint. There, there isn't a whole lot of uh, economic uh, analysis that supports what the president is saying. From a populist rhetoric standpoint, uh, it polls very, very well, you know, to uh, this this idea that corporations are the reason for high prices. Now, we've had this very same corporations for the past, you know, 20 or 30 years during a period of very low inflation. So it's hard to uh, make the case. But it, uh, it very clearly, you saw it in, in uh, some of the exit polling I saw uh, and the dial tests during the speech, it got a very, very strong reaction. So this is it's a sympathetic um, uh, it gets a sympathetic uh, ear from American voters, which is worrying for someone like me who's worried about, you know, if there, if there are pop, uh, you know, policy mistakes here. The White House is flailing on immigration. Uh, I'm sorry, on uh, inflation. It's a difficult issue. There's not much they can do about it. They have to depend on the Fed uh, to, you know, to withdraw so much support for the economy right now. And they're also just paying a price for having poured so much spending into the economy early uh, in uh, in 2021. So there's, there's not much they can do about it except to try to jawbone and try to find uh, other scapegoats for it. And that's what he was doing. From a political standpoint, though, it, it does work for him. Tony, if you could just bear with us, I just want to cross town to uh, Alice Barr, NBC's Alice Barr, who also joins us from Washington now with an assessment of the speech and also the GOP response. Alice, good morning and welcome to the program. Can you sum it up for us? Did the uh, the GOP response perhaps manage to land any punches as they accuse the Democrats maybe of being complacent on foreign policy over recent years? Jeff, that was certainly a main thrust of the Republican response from the governor of Iowa here, Kim Reynolds. She spoke a lot about uh, accusing President Biden of being weak in opposition to Russian President Vladimir Putin. And in the run up to this, there had been a movement from many Republican lawmakers to impose these harsh sanctions much earlier. as a deterrent, but as a more sharp message earlier in this process of the kind of opposition that Putin would be facing if he moved ahead. So she certainly focused on that quite a bit, um, sort of accusing the president of letting this get to the point where it is now. A lot of Republican response has said, you know, we're, we're relatively happy with uh, the tough sanctions that are in place now. But it, again, it's just too late in their opinion. Uh, a lot of reference as well to the Afghanistan withdrawal of last summer that did not go well by 
nearly every account. Um, and many Republicans are pointing to that and indicating that the way that President Biden handled that troop withdrawal, leaving many uh, U.S. allies behind in Afghanistan, losing a number of American troops, um, that that was a sign of weakness that they believe was a precursor that may have emboldened uh, Putin and other autocrats around the world. So you're hearing a lot of that kind of message out of the Republican side tonight, as well as speaking heavily about uh, COVID restrictions, the pandemic. Uh, uh, Governor Reynolds of Iowa spoke about that a lot. You know, tonight it was notable that when you looked around the House chamber, there were almost no masks being worn. So now we've arrived at this place uh, where masks are optional. A lot of COVID rules are being loosened and Republicans are saying this is what we've been you know, saying should have been the case all along. Leave things up to individuals to make their decisions. So I'd say those were the two main uh, key points that were being brought up by Republicans tonight. Alice, thank you so much for giving us your time. Alice Barr from NBC out of Washington with an assessment of the GOP response and the speech. Tony, can I come back to you? Tony's a founding partner of Hamilton Place Strategies. Tony, there's a lot of legislation around social spending that's currently locked up in the legislative cogs at the moment. Uh, President Biden referenced some of that. Is this speech going to be enough to dislodge Republican resistance? No, I'm afraid not. You know, the, the, the problem that the president has is for that big package of social spending bills that, uh, you know, any any single piece of it, you could do the polling on it looks, you know, pretty uh, fairly popular. All of them together are just not going to get the support of the two senators, one one from uh, West Virginia, one from Arizona, they're not going to support this full package. So the math hasn't changed and nothing the president said tonight uh, could change that. I, I had thought that, you know, maybe if they were going to look for a bold stroke to break that up, you know, dislodge it and try to get some movement on it, that he may try to take two or three pieces and really emphasize them and say that we're going to go forward with those. But in his caucus right now, the Democratic caucus, uh, it's really, really hard to break these things apart. It, the, people believe that there's one boat right now and uh, you know one arc and all the animals need to get on it. And uh, so no one's willing to give up their piece of it. And so the votes aren't there for it. Tony, what I didn't see was a lot of talk about how the administration is going to retune its strategy on trade towards China. There was there was clearly some references to how you try to rejuvenate manufacturing in the United States, but nothing particularly spiky directed towards Beijing. Is that a sign of sensitivity around China's position on Ukraine, Russia right now? Or do you put that down to something else? Yeah, that's a terrific observation. I thought I had exactly the same thought. I was really expecting to see strong China language. You know, everyone who's looking forward to the 2024 uh, races and even uh, sorry, the 2022 races is really knows that China is going to be a big part of this message. But it is a sensitive time for them right now. Uh, and they you know, want to keep China in a place where they'll be largely neutral and not provide uh, too much of any support for uh, for Russia in this moment. It is a very important moment. I expected to hear a lot more from China in the speech, and I think it was a pretty glaring emission, uh, omission. And uh, and, and I, I don't have a better explanation for it than, than what you just described. I think that's uh, that's the best reason for it. Just uh, before we let you go, you mentioned the election cycle. Obviously, the, the midterms are going to be critical. The uh, polling um, in favor of the president, we just put it up on screen and it just indicates that 
uh, favorability towards him declined through much of 2021. Um, how challenging is the Democrat race going to be for the midterms here? And do you think the president has a chance of lifting or turning around this falling rating? Not well, not much. I mean, if, if uh, you know, if inflation could turn around, uh, in, uh, you know, over the next six months, maybe he's got a chance to recover some of that. Uh, Alice uh, Hall earlier in her description of, of uh, the, the the Republican response, you could see their messages are very simple and very clear. There, it's you know, it's uh, it's inflation. It is uh, the question of competency on foreign policy. Uh, it's crime, and uh, and it's this idea that uh, you know the, at this time, as you see, oil prices. You reported earlier, oil prices spiking. We have oil prices spiking, and the president was trying to uh, you know restrict the production of oil in the in the country. So their their messages are really simple and actually really powerful. They're not going to have a good midterm election. They're going to lose the House of Representatives. The only question is by how much. If he can recover some of his reputation, maybe by doing very well and have a, having success uh, on on foreign policy, if inflation, uh, you know, if we've seen the top of it and, and it starts coming down again, uh, he may be able to recover some of that because the other parts of the economy are well, you know, GDP is strong enough. Job creation, as he mentioned tonight, is uh, uh, is very strong as well. So he's got a chance for a message, but it's not going to help them with the House of Representatives. That's lost. Uh, it may help him to keep the Senate in Democratic hands if they can pick up one or two seats uh, that'll uh, you know that'll put him in a, in a fighting position at least for the back end of his first term. Tony, appreciate your time. Thanks for staying up for us. Tony Fratto, founding partner of Hamilton Place Strategies, someone we're going to talk to quite a lot, I suspect, as we head towards those midterms and look at the way the parties are managing their strategies. Um, Very interesting Goldman Sachs analysis of what mutual funds are doing at the moment. You can find that piece on CNBC.com, but Goldman Sachs says mutual funds are using this opportunity to pick up favorite stocks in the growth segment. They did a survey of uh, 534 active managers and the messages they were getting back is, we like the growth stocks, we are trying to pick up selectively at lower prices, growth. Now, you wouldn't think that, would you, as you look at the price movement we had yesterday, the Nasdaq composite off 1.6% almost, the S&P down 1.5%, and the Dow shedding nearly 600 points here. But the U.S. futures suggest we'll have a slightly positive start to the trading session with the Nasdaq up 56 points or so, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average up 137 points and the implied open for the S&P also positive. The Treasury curve continues to reflect the risk aversion. Uh, There was a lot of excitement uh, internally on our CNBC messaging system yesterday as the 10-year note made it back down to one spot Uh, The uh, rest of the curve, as you can see here, with yields generally easing. And I will tell you, we saw the 30-year mortgage rate 3.9%. Would you take 30-year money at 3.9%? A reflection of that shift we're seeing in interest rate expectations. And you know what's going on with the uh, expectation around the Fed move here? Fed funds is now pricing in four and a half 
rate hikes. Do you remember people talking about seven? We're going to hear from Jay Powell a little later on, so hopefully we'll find out a bit more about how he intends to, quote, thread the needle, that piece also on CNBC.com. Let's have a look at the uh, commodity prices because inevitably this is where a lot of investors have tried to cluster as we've seen the reaction to the ongoing fighting in higher commodity prices. And as you can see, wheat continues to be very strong, up 2.8% here. And we've also seen gains across the rest of the softs. The current quote, as you can see on corn and soybeans uh, futures, uh, just slightly weaker this hour with uh, soybeans down 1.5%. Asian markets, what do they suggest for the European Open? Let's have a look at the legacy we're getting from Asia this morning. Well, the uh, commodity rich uh, S&P ASX 200 is higher, about a quarter of one point here. But as far as the rest of the Asian markets are concerned, they've caught a bit of a cold from that very weak US session. And we are, as we say, continuing to watch the Hong Kong market, specifically as we hear Carrie Lam with more impassioned pleas for Hong Kong citizens not to strip the shelves of supermarkets as they now look likely to go into, uh, I think, a nine-day lockdown as they get tested three times across the whole territory. That's uh, what, nearly seven million people that they intend to test three times over the space of nine days here. Um, Carrie Lam sounding more and more desperate to try and persuade Hong Kong people not to stockpile as they go into that isolation. Fed Chair Jerome Powell then will speak before House and Senate panels this week where he'll face the twin challenges of spiralling inflation and the economic fallout from the Ukraine crisis. CNBC.com has more on that story. Coming up on the programme, the West moves to isolate Russia from the rest of the world as the US joins a growing list of countries that have now closed their airspace to Russian aircraft. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. Oil prices are surging with WTI hitting its highest level since September 2013 as Russian troops target some of Ukraine's biggest cities. The US and 30 allies have agreed to release 60 million barrels of oil from their strategic reserves in a bid to stabilize global energy markets. I don't think I'll be the first to point out doesn't seem to be moving the oil price. So I think we need a slightly bigger effort than that. But we'll talk to to that story in just a moment. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden also announced he's banning Russian aircraft from U.S. airspace, joining a growing number of countries in closing their skies to Russia. Tonight, I'm announcing that we will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia and adding additional squeeze on their economy. He has no idea what's coming. 
Well, let's get out to Hadley, who joins us uh, from Moscow with more on this story. And interesting, President Biden also talking about additional measures, Hadley, against the oligarchs. Absolutely, Jeff. In his State of the Union address, the president lashing out, frankly, directly at Vladimir Putin, saying that the president of Russia had made a strategic miscalculation. But he also took the chance in that two-hour speech to say something about the president's inner circle. Listen in. I say to the Russian oligarchs and the corrupt leaders who built billions of dollars off this violent regime, no more. The United States... I mean it. The United States Department of Justice is assembling a dedicated task force to go after the crimes of the Russian oligarchs. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for you, ill-begotten gains. U.S. President Joe Biden essentially saying that the oligarchs will be targeted. And he's talking about folks that uh, are pretty more, they're, they're a bit more known to those of us who spend a lot of time in Europe versus those in the United States. Now, you remember back in 2018, um, one Russian oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, was targeted by U.S. sanctions. That, of course, had a major impact on the aluminum market, um, something that many folks uh, decided at that time was, uh, was sort of a, a miscalculation on the part of the Americans, if you will. Um, but one of the things that we've been doing on CNBC.com, and they've been doing some great reporting, is to watch uh, the assets of these uber-wealthy Russians, where they're headed, what they're doing, where they're going, to avoid any potential seizure or sanctions uh, by the Europeans, by the Americans. And according to CNBC.com, who's been using uh, Marine Traffics, their website, um, we've seen the president of Russia's Luke Oil, Vajit Alekperov, moving his yacht, he's been moving that apparently, uh, to Montenegro, to the port there. We've also seen the movement of Oleg Deripaska, yacht. Now, this is interesting, I think, um, to, to take a step back and think about what we've heard from these guys over the last couple of weeks. Um, there was a move potentially to involve Roman Abramovich, um, the Chelsea football club backer, um, in some kind of negotiation. There were reports that he'd been approached, frankly, by both sides for some kind of mediation. Oleg Deripaska, I saw him on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference just two weeks ago. He told me at that time that he believed the Russian president had no intention to go in Ukraine. And, uh, and since then, we've seen an email, or rather a message that he sent to his employees that essentially said that he does not support the invasion of Ukraine and that it was a tragedy. We also have heard from one of Russia's top billionaires, uh, Mikhail Friedman, and he has openly denounced the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So it's not necessarily as if uh, the folks that have been made wealthy off the back of Vladimir Putin's 20 years in power, made wealthy off of his decisions uh, for the Russian economy, not all of them are in support of the president. Now, of course, that may have more to do, you know, that's speculation, of course, but it may have more to do with the fact that they're going to get hit potentially by sanctions than it does necessarily with them not agreeing with him. But to give them the benefit of the doubt, there has been some pushback, and they have been vociferous, some of them at least, in coming out uh, to say that they don't support Vladimir Putin's actions in Ukraine. I do want to mention, though, that in terms of the response that we've seen from the Russian government, you'll remember Dmitry Medvedev, of course, the former president of Russia. Um, this was a man that between two terms of, uh, of Vladimir Putin as prime minister took the reins of government here, and that was always speculation about just how much power he actually had. He's now a deputy member of the Security Council. Today he was tweeting, quote, some French minister has said that they have declared an economic war on Russia. Watch your tongue, gentlemen. And don't forget that in human history, 
economic wars quite often turn into real ones. So there has been some direct pushback on uh, the, the conversations, frankly, coming out of Western capitals. But again, um, the State of the Union address, President Biden uh, actually facing criticism, if you'll, if you'll do a little reading and a little listening, from both sides of the aisle that he was perhaps not tough enough, did not announce enough uh, strategic measures to combat um, the actions of the Russians in Ukraine, Jeff. Uh, we, we probably should just mention the French finance minister actually rolled back those comments himself and said that maybe he'd gone a little bit too far subsequently. But point noted, Hadley. Let's just talk about energy. The German economy minister, Robert Habeck, is uh, talking this morning uh, about what the implications would be of a um, cessation of uh, Russian gas supplied to Germany and the rest of Europe and he says we are prepared should Russia stop gas exports. As it happens we have an OPEC plus meeting ongoing. Is there any possibility at all that the Saudi Arabians would put their two million barrels spare capacity, their daily spare capacity on the table here to ease the pressure if Russia's supply is removed? At this point, Jeff, there's no indication that they would be willing to do so or that they even think that that is a good idea. As you know, this is an organization that considers themselves um, sort of uh, the, the arbiter or at least um, the, the leader in terms of keeping uh, global energy supplies, global oil supplies um, at the market stabilized, if you will. Saudi Arabia's energy minister really does believe in the things that he says, and he says that our job is not uh, about prices, it's about stabilization. And of course, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to speak to one of those OPEC ministers in Egypt, and he told me not only did they have no indication that their Russian partners in OPEC Plus were going to invade, they also, you know, had no plan to... Uh, basically stabilize the market if Russian supplies were taken off the market. One of the things, or volumes were taken off the market, one of the things that I think is really important to point out with regards to the global energy picture, though, is the prospect or potential for Western energy sanctions. Now, the folks that I've been speaking to behind the scenes on Capitol Hill say that oil sanctions are still very much a part of the conversation and that they do have some bipartisan support. Oil sanctions, potentially not gas sanctions. And that's, of course, because European allies still are relying on Russia to such a great extent um, for their gas needs, and their energy needs. But that oil conversation is happening, even if potentially the Biden team hasn't decided to put that out on the table. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.